This is the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke. Luke 18, verses 1-8. through Jesus told His disciples a parable about their need to pray always and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that day there was a widow who kept coming to Him and saying, Grant me justice against my opponent. For a while he refused, but later he said to himself, Though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice, so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This is the Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, well, good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. If we haven't met, um, my name is Isaiah. I'm the associate pastor here. And um, I'm really, really grateful to be here with y'all and also really grateful for this text. And it just feels like another one that is um, cut right to the heart for me. So to start off this morning, I want to give a little context for the passage first and then talk about what this might mean for us as a community, what the Spirit might be saying to us as a church. So first, the necessary cultural background. Um, when we hear that someone is a widow in the modern day, like United States, I think maybe what comes to mind for us is like maybe an older woman who has lost her husband, perhaps in some circumstances, maybe more rare, a younger woman, and that might be kind of the end of it. Um, but I think what we need to understand for this passage is when the text talks about uh, widow, when Jesus is telling the story, his hearers are thinking of something actually a bit more intense. And that has to do a lot with the social location of widows in first century Palestine. And the, the first piece of this, that and it, it's actually relevant not just in the sense of us understanding the passage, but also I think it's kind of a bridge for how we connect with this passage, is there's a sense of um, actually powerlessness in this situation that's even a little bit hard for us to grasp. Because uh, first century Palestine is a patriarchal culture, um, immediately when the story is being told, like many of Jesus' parables, there's a lot of like warning signs, like there's some things, like red flags are going up for people as they're hearing it. Because here is a woman, a widow, who is going before a judge by herself. So there's no, there's no male figure, there's no kinsman, there's nobody there advocating on her behalf. So already this is a problem. This is like an alarming situation, right? And to top things off, of course, because of her social location, um, this guy just doesn't, he doesn't care about anybody anyways, right? He doesn't fear God. This is repeated in the text twice in this little story that Jesus is telling. Even he reflects on it himself. You know, if you notice halfway through, he says to himself, well, I don't really care about anybody, but, you know, maybe I should actually, like, give this lady what she wants so she will, will stop bothering me. But um, this, is, this is someone who, like, is, is unjust or in some translations is, is evil and yet holds all of the power over this woman's situation. We're not told exactly what it is, but we could imagine the sorts of situations that might be where there's like there's a loss of, of property. There's really a risk of destitution that's happening here, right? So this is someone who is like very much on the margins and honestly is even a little bit, this is a very feisty kind of bold move to be by yourself. It's actually socially inappropriate to be doing it. And yet here she is like petitioning um, this person who self-proclaimed does not care about God or anybody, not even his most wealthy or influential neighbors, much less someone that is this, uh, this far on the margins. 
And so I, I wanted to highlight this um, because actually the point of the story has a lot more to do with her agency, and she's actually held up as a model of faith. This is something, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, but in many of Jesus' teachings that um, is actually uncommon for his day, that women are being held up as models of faith and disciples, where she couldn't even be a witness in this court during this time and in this culture. Here she's being shown as an exemplar, someone who actually knows what God is up to and is betting on it, okay? Um, so that's, that's actually probably a bit more the point of where, where we're going in terms of the parable. But first, I think we need to start and sit in the powerlessness. And this is why, it, um, this is where we begin to connect with it. So I think that when I began to ponder over this text this week, and, and even the previous week, um, I, I think that for a lot of us, when we hear a parable that is in the beginning is, is you know, it's, it's, uh, Luke gives us this little uh, editorial comment that's inspired by the Holy Spirit that says, you know, this, this parable is about prayer and not losing heart, not being discouraged, right? Um, and then at the end of the parable, Jesus, you know, ends it with this kind of intense statement about, well, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So one of the questions as we're reading the story is, well, is it, is it about prayer? Is it about faith? Yes. Both, both and prayer is an expression of faith, right? Um, and I think for a lot of us, when we hear that, um, we hear the word faith. It might even honestly be, I mean, maybe trigger is not even too strong of a word. It actually might bring up a lot of um, environments. Maybe you don't have enough faith. People have told you that. Maybe you're secretly worried about that. There might even be just confusion around what is faith. Um, and similarly for prayer, it often immediately we start uh, talking about prayer. And I think for a lot of us, internally, we begin to feel guilty for like, well, we should probably do more of that. I wish that I liked it more than I did. And I think we just need to push that to the side this morning, okay? Um, and I think we actually need to, to start where this woman starts, which is actually in a very powerless place. And I think and a lot of us can relate with that. We can connect with that. I know that for myself, I can. Um, sometimes, even in some seasons, most of the time, when I come to prayer, there is a sense of like, I, I don't feel powerful in my circumstances. I don't feel like the things that are coming against me, I have like a for sure like uh, victory over or mastery over, right? And that is the social location of this woman. So this widow is powerless. That's how Luke's readers felt then and how often is how we feel today. Um, in the face of great personal injustice, um, in the, you know, we're being uh, frequently faced with what feels like uh, unflinching entropy and chaos. Some of us may in this room even be literally facing an, a situation like this, but, but some of us also may be in this other space of we're, we're actually looking out in a world where there is a lot of injustice, and we feel our own sort of uh, powerlessness. We feel maybe even some sense of guilt for participating in the systems that we can see are pushing people to the margins, but we also don't know exactly what to do. We don't know if we can imagine a world that actually is more just, and so we feel a sense of powerlessness as well. And so this is the place to start when coming to this passage. We start where the widow starts, in a space of powerlessness. But that's not where we stay. I think that a second thing that we might feel when we come to this text is actually a, uh, a real question, if we're, if we're really honest. And this may not be for all of us, but I think it is for some for sure, is when we're faced and when we look at the injustice, whether like in our day and age we're just exposed to a, a massive amount of not just our local injustice, but globally, right? We're in a very connected world with the internet, and so it's just overwhelming. You flip through your newsfeed, and 
it's like the war in Ukraine and what's going on in Taiwan and did North Korea just fire a missile? You know, just, just that level of stuff, much less any of the political division we're experiencing or the local concerns or, you know, the Razorback season, which is not going that well. I mean, yesterday was better, but, you know, any of these things, um, they, they, can, they can come at us like a flood, right? And uh, we're just tempted to turn it off, right? We're tempted to just feel like, well, this is out of our control. And largely a lot of it is, like, arguably out of our control. Um, and so we look at the world and we can't really imagine God's activity in it. Um, you know, we're largely like uh, blind to the way that our, our culture increasingly um, has relied increasingly on material uh, explanations for the world. And so we, we, we kind of uh, add that plus um, all the injustice that we see. And we just frankly can't imagine a world that God's in. Or even worse, we begin to actually kind of wonder like, even if God was involved in this, would it, would it actually be a good outcome? Is God really good? And I actually think this is something that Jesus presupposes. I think part of the irony of this parable is actually him kind of holding up this character of the unjust judge who like actually in some ways is like an anti-type or type for God in a certain kind of way. And I wonder if part of it is actually he's kind of goading us a little bit and saying, is this who you think God is? Do you think he's like an unjust, indifferent God that doesn't really care that much about what's going on? And then, of course, he flips the script. So this parable is actually really more of a how much more kind of parable. And Jesus does this like in Luke 11 where he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And he says, you know, which of you would, you know, if your kid asked you for bread, would give him a stone? Or if they asked you for fish, would give him a snake or a scorpion? How much more would your father give? the Holy Spirit to those who ask, right? And in this case, it's a bit more implied, but it's the same kind of rhetorical move that Jesus pulls again and again, which is to say, like, even this unjust judge, who we can all just agree is basically evil, right? Even him, he gives in to this widow who comes boldly, persistently, with whatever meager social power or location she has, which is almost nothing. You know, how much more would God give justice to those who cry out to him day and night, you know? And he ends it with a question. This is so Jesus, right? He always ends, you know, people are asking him questions, like in this whole section, they're saying, when will the kingdom come? This continues all the way into Acts, by the way, just spoiler alert. But they're always asking him, when will the kingdom come? You're talking about the kingdom. Like, when's that going to come? When is the way that things are supposed to be? When's that going to happen? You're here. When's that going to happen, right? And, and he actually asks them kind of a different question. He says, when that kingdom comes, when the Son of Man comes, like, not just in the future, but I think also in the present. I'm right here in front of you. Um, will you be here to receive it? Will you be present enough? Will you actually be open enough? Will you be taking whatever meager amount of trust that you can muster? Remember the mustard seed from a couple weeks ago, right? That we talked about as a parable of faith. This tiny, tiny little bit. And it has, like, of course, incredibly big uh, implications. It grows into this amazing habitat. But, but it, when it starts, it's not like that. It's like this. It could be blown away. You could barely know that you have it. Even that level, even the, like the widow, like just coming with a little bit of meager social power that she has, like even that is faith. So don't, don't get into a grandiose moment of like, well, I've just got to be thinking all the best thoughts all the time. And if I'm reading the Bible and I'm doing all the things, and if I could just stop sitting, that's not actually what faith is about. It's actually about an extension of trust toward God. It's just the want to want to. It's not even our like unvarnished zeal that, you know, just that comes through. But actually, we, we barely have that on a good day for a few hours anyways. But um, it's actually just what we extend to God over and over again in terms of our trust. 
And I think that's really, really important, especially when we begin to think about the horizon of this passage. And then I want to pause just slightly in, in, uh, on, the, on the context before we continue into like what this might mean for us. One of the other things that I think is so, so crucial for this passage is a view of the world. I like this idea of, uh, I think Dallas Willard calls it a God-soaked imagination. So Jesus sees the world in a God-soaked imagination. He sees the world not in cold materialistic terms. He sees it as God is present, God is working, God is active, right? This is the reality for Jesus. And arguably, this is the, the reality for his disciples increasingly and for us, right, throughout church history and even today. Um, and I think a good example of this, um, this kind of God-soaked world that sees the inbreaking of God's kingdom uh, would be like something like Dr. King. You can see that there's, a, of course, a present uh, reality to the kingdom of God where Jesus talks about the kingdom being present. Jesus talks about the kingdom being at hand. There's also, as we know, like this, this, this consummation of the kingdom when everything is finally put to rights. Um, and this ultimate finality is the vision that human beings long for of justice and flourishing, right? Um, and you can hear this in, in someone like Dr. King. And this is important because we often think of Dr. King as sort of like this, you know, activist. Um, we don't see him as the contemplative. We don't necessarily even see him as a, a reverend, increasingly, um, but he is a pastor. You can listen to him in sermons. And there's something about his worldview that's actually very similar to this widow. Because and actually, on some level, I think this widow is actually not appealing to this judge. Um, this guy doesn't care about anybody. She's appealing to something higher, something deeper, something truer that is ultimately going to be the way that things are, and even now is beginning to break in, right? And so you can hear this in Dr. King when he says things like, we shall overcome, he's talking to civil rights leaders, we shall overcome because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice, okay? And this is a sense of God's both presentness and also the ultimate finality of God's reign, right? This is the end of the story. And the end affects the present, not just in inspiration, but in character and quality and orientation. You see, the appeal of this woman and, this, and Dr. King were not ultimately to the power, uh, powerful person in front of them, whether that be a governor or an unjust judge. He was opposed by many. And I don't, and speaking of Dr. King in particular, because I think he's a good modern illustration of this, you know, the person in front of him, I, I don't think often was the person he was appealing to. He was grateful if they acquiesced. He was grateful if they were able to repent and see it differently. But often they were not. But ultimately, I think his appeal was actually higher, to a higher justice, to an ultimate sense of flourishing. And why that matters is because uh, it's actually, it'd be one thing if he just lived that way and, and died that way without seeing any fruit. And that's actually important. And some of us, maybe that is how we feel in the moment, um, to be faithful even in the face of it seemingly not much uh, present movement. Um, but actually in his life, we know there's incredible momentum. And it's, of course, not finished. And of course, it was the beginning. But the, our country it will, will never be the same um, after this movement. And it's not just Dr. King, but many of those who march with him. And I would argue that largely the animating force, at least for him, if you've read his writings like I have or listened to his speeches, you'll hear it again and again. It's this idea of God's kingdom being the ultimate place of justice and flourishing. And so it fuels his action, it fuels his prayer. He's actually a quite prayerful person. Um, and it, it positions him towards um, something higher than the authorities that are in front of us, evil as they may be. When we think about prayer, it's not just about justice. 
it's not just about crying out for a final state, but it's also about this ongoing extension of trust. Coming to God as we are, not as we imagine ourselves to be, not as the way we think we should be, um, but as actually how we really are. Um, Nothing less than this is true prayer. And to be sure, we don't always know the true depth or sincerity of our motives, but we know when we're holding back. We know when we're not showing up. And this is the invitation from this widow as an exemplar of faith, is to show up. It's not to have everything figured out. It's not to muster a little bit more social clout. It's just to show up. It's to be persistent in our trust and our extension of uh, of trust to the Lord. Unless we think that, you know, this is even this, I think sometimes we think about prayer, and I'm not even sure exactly how to say this, but it's uh, it's almost like it, it gets uh, categorized as sort of this religious thing, this spiritual thing, something that pious people do. But actually prayer, and this statistics actually bear this out, prayer is a really human thing. Um, people of like like every era and every place on the planet pray to, to some capacity or another. It's actually something we're hardwired from. And one of the great travesties, I think, of prayer in the church is this sense of um, where, where duty has basically clobbered delight. What is meant to be communion, um, not in just in the Eucharistic sense, although, of course, it happens at the table, but literally communion, like our fellowship with God, our fellowship with one another by the Spirit. Um, that's the real gift of prayer. That's what we really would hope for. But instead, it somehow gets kind of categorized as like, well, um, God's probably maybe a little bit like this unjust judge. Maybe he doesn't care that much. Maybe if we can appease him, right? Maybe if we can just, and especially when it comes to prayer, it's like maybe if we prayed more, then maybe things would go better. And we're kind of working out some kind of weird moral calculus. Instead of seeing a father that Jesus sees who is willing, so much more willing than an unjust judge, right? To respond to the prayers of his kids. And the summons is actually not one of trying to do all the right things and be the most pious person. The summons is to say, wherever you are, whatever whatever social location you find yourself in, will you just come? Will you extend trust again and again and again? Just like the little mustard seed. Uh, prayer is a human thing. We're hardwired for it. It's not for the, only those who are particularly bent towards the mystical or especially disciplined. It is the relational, ongoing redirection of our attention towards God. Let me say that again. Prayer is the relational, ongoing redirection of our attention towards God to a God who hears us and is not distant or disinterested. He takes our want to want to. Not even like our want, but our want to want to. This is the thing that I love about faith and the thing that I love about prayer. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus' followers and adversaries have been asking him about the kingdom as he's been announcing the time of God's favor and his reign coming on earth through his person and ministry. They have been asking, when and where is the kingdom coming? And he is asking them when it comes, will you be present enough to receive it? In other words, you can be certain, this is Jesus, this is not me, (laughs) you can be certain that God will be faithful to his promises, but will he find us extending our meager and yet powerful trust towards him when he responds to us. Y'all, this is the kind of church that I hope us to be. Not concerned with spiritual performance, 
uh, or spiritual merit badges, um, virtue signaling, but extending simple prayers to God, growing in our trust of God's goodness. I want to inhabit together even just a little bit of the God-soaked vision of this world that Jesus knows, an imagination of the Spirit's work in our midst and in the world that cannot be confined to cold materialism or passive despair of our cultural moment. And I would be remiss not to leave you with something more practical. Prayer is something I actually really love and I really am excited about in our church. I don't know what that will look like. I think it's just unique to each group of people. And these are the people that God's gathered in this time, in this space, Northwest Arkansas. And I'm just, I'm here for it. Um, but I do want to give you a couple of things that could be, if you're in the space, especially if you're here this morning, and I really hope you can hear me, and you're like, I just don't know if I can. Like, I just... I, either through the, the hype of previous spiritual environments or just the injustice in the world that we talked about and just whether you're one who's you know been dealt a circumstance of injustice or even just witnessing those around you. And it's just hard to imagine that there's a willing God. It, it's just easier for us to imagine that he's, he's either not there at all or if he is, he's very indifferent to our plight. Um, but I would encourage you just to extend whatever you have, just the little bit that you have, meager as it may be, and to see what God might do. Knowing that he will bring things to fulfillment in the end, and also that he is actively working and present in our world today. Um, here's, a couple, here's just a couple of really practical things. Some of you may be familiar with the app um, Praise You Go. This is something that has really helped me when I feel like I'm not maybe even in a space to pray on my own to be able to just put in, it's just a really simple podcast. You could do it as you're working out or as you're driving to work or whether you're nursing a baby or if you're up late with a sick, you could just you know put it on and it just basically goes through the same passage of scripture twice, has a little bit of worship, has some prayerful questions and some meditation. Even just something small like that, adding something like that to your morning commute could begin to actually redirect your attention and, and trust and honestly, I find it's really helpful just to join like my little bit of faith with somebody else who's praying, even if it's on a podcast. And I know like maybe some of you are like, oh, this feels so disembodied and that's fine. So that's, I have a second suggestion for you. But if, if, if that feels like, well, I could do that. I could put that on. Like I have a half hour commute or whatever. Um, then, then just do it. I just would encourage you to like just, just to experiment a little bit. See what your little meager like bit of trust extended towards God could look like. Um, second thing that you could do, and this is a really, really beautiful way. We already do this on Sunday morning. We just did it this morning, but, um, but I think we could do it even, uh, you can do it on your own or, or with others in a, in a, a bit slower of a way, a bit more contemplative of a way. And that's praying the Psalms. And, um, lest that feel just overwhelming, like, okay, there's a lot of Psalms. I've read the Psalms. Some of the Psalms are a little intense. Maybe just start with like Psalm 23. So start with uh, Psalm 121 that we read this morning is so beautiful and so powerful. Psalm 91, Psalm 139. Um, these, these are like spaces that not only are inspired by the Holy Spirit and coming to us through, right, like the Hebrew Bible, but um, they're also places that Christians all over the globe and throughout history have gone to time and time again and have been a place where God meets them and encourages them and it brings comfort and, and uh, it gives them uh, like a, it's like a lifting of your head. It gives them encouragement to be able to kind of see how God might be at work in the world. So those are just really, really practical things. But 
uh, as we close, I just want you to kind of think about your week this week and think about where those spaces are where you could take the little bit of trust, the little mustard seed of trust that you have and extend it toward a God who cares, a God who is invested, a God who's leaned in and is not indifferent to our world. And I would encourage you to be persistent. You know, I'd be remiss. Sometimes we get caught up reading this kind of parable and we just think, well, she sounds superhuman. She just keeps going. She just keeps going. I don't have that in me. Uh, but I think we need to also see the powerlessness of her for, this, for the very reason that sometimes our persistence comes in a place where we feel like we barely can do anything. But I would encourage whatever you can do, just keep doing it and to see how God might respond. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of your Spirit who is with us and in us, filling us. We thank you for the gift of your love poured out for us. God, I ask for each person in this room, especially those who feel like they've given up hope um, and not sure what prayer or faith would look like, especially those who've been maybe beat down by the spiritual superstars of our world, that they'd be able to enter into your rest, that they'd be able to extend trust to you in the simple, powerful, and mighty way that this woman does. God, I ask for myself and for, for our entire church that we would be a people of prayer, um, not of, of spiritual performance, but of sincerity, that we would actually show up, that we would not hold back, that we would take our like just even half-hearted yeses and we would join them to your big yes. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.